Clinker Factor, the cement industry podcast. So welcome to the Clinker Factor. Uh, This is WCA's uh, podcast on uh, matters of interest uh, with respect to uh, climate change in the cement industry around the world. So I might start just by explaining who WCA is. Uh, WCA is the World Cement Association. We're a non-profit company based in London. We're owned by our members. And our members are both cement producers and other stakeholders for the cement industry uh, around the world. And uh, today uh, we're going to talk about the uh, European Union uh, Emission Trading Scheme. And I'm uh, very pleased to have with me uh, three people who know a lot about the topic. Uh, so first of all is, uh, is Vincent Lefebvre, who's uh, the joint chairman of the World Cement Association and uh, who's also the founder and executive chairman of Seminu, which is an industrial startup uh, in the cement industry in Europe. We also have uh, Michael Mailing, who's a deputy director of the MIT Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research and a professor at the University of Strathclyde Law School. Uh, and the third uh, panel member is Anna Corkler. Uh, Anna has 25 years experience in the cement industry, of which 13 years were as a senior executive at Holcim uh, before leaving to create uh, Cementis. And Cementis has since then managed several large-scale uh, sustainable development projects for international cement groups and leading financial organizations worldwide. So uh, the ETS uh, is a market-based cap and trade scheme introduced in in 2005 to set reduction targets for industrial CO2 emissions in the EU. And it's going to enter its fourth phase next year. When it started, the carbon price uh, was uh, quite buoyant. But uh, when we came to the financial crisis, it fell from about 30 euros per ton down to a low of three euros per ton, a level it maintained for several years before recovering recently to the current levels of 27 to 30 euros per ton. So a controversial part of this has been the free allocations. So the idea here is that industries exposed to carbon leakage through imports receive free allocations Uh, And this helps to insulate them from unfair competition from imports. So these allocations were set before the 2008 financial crisis. And after the decline drop following the crisis, there was a a considerable overallocation, which undermined the effectiveness of the ETS and caused the uh, price to drop. But it also, because of the rules, allowed the uh, European cement industry to realize quite a large profit from uh, the selling of unneeded allowances, which has been estimated to be around 3.5 to 5 billion euros. So with that background, I'd like to um, uh, start uh, uh, to get a little bit more of an expert perspective. And maybe I can start with you, Michael, and and ask you to to give us uh, uh, your view of uh, how the uh, ETS started and how it's developed. Well, sure, Ian, and thank you for having me on this podcast. So the history of the EUTS is an interesting one, at least for academics. It offers a lot of uh, research material because, as you might remember, throughout the 1990s, the EU Commission, which has the initiative on starting and and pushing forward legislation, was dead set on using a carbon tax um, to achieve climate objectives across the EU, especially under the Kyoto Protocol. And I believe it was Jos Delbecke as Director General, 
or at least head of unit in, in DG Environment at the time, who kept pushing this idea of a carbon tax. Um, and it kept failing because of certain procedural requirements within the EU. So the need for a unanimous vote in the council. And so as the Kyoto Protocol was adopted and the Americans managed to, in Kyoto back in 1997, bring in this idea of trading, they had successfully piloted that um, under the Clean Air Act in the United States. There was this shift of thinking in the EU. Initially, there had been a lot of mistrust. Is this trading going to work? You know, is it not sort of going to be a, a well, invite all kinds of shenanigans? Um, but there was, I think, really sort of a moment of, of, of warming up to the idea. And then the EU really switched from being initially opposed, especially in these international negotiations, to using a market based approach that involves trading, to embracing it wholeheartedly. And very quickly, between the late 1990s, really in 2000, the first Green Paper, all the way to 2001 and 2002, you had these legislative proposals. And by 2003, the EU had introduced a directive that was going to create by 2005, the largest cap and trade system ever developed um, in, in history. And that's been the central pillar of greenhouse gas abatement policy for industry, um, for the power sector, of course, and uniquely for aviation for a number of years in the EU. And as you mentioned very nicely, it's had sort of ups and downs. So for a long time, there were a number of design features that created problems and the low prices, the lack of any way to manage a supply and demand imbalance was, was really responsible um, given that external shocks such as the economic and financial crisis couldn't be managed. The commission and, and member states had no way to sort of try to fix that. Um, but I also feel like there's been a lot of learning in the design each time the EU ETS has gone from one phase to another. There's been sort of a reform accompanying that. So we're currently in the third phase. We've already seen improvements and reforms for the fourth phase. Um, and it has sort of made the system more resilient, more, more stable. The market stability reserve, for instance, now allows sweeping up some of these surplus allowances, preventing or at least putting some sort of a floor um, under the price and preventing these very, very low prices. And as you um, mentioned, despite prices having been low very long, now they're actually, again, back at some of the highest levels seen in, in a decade. In fact, I think two years ago, uh, EUAs were the best performing commodity, <laughs> according to some financial trading institution. Um, so we're back to where it should be, I think, and where it's starting to really make a difference, doing things like promoting fuel switching in the power sector, and of course, promoting decarbonization across all the other covered sectors. But that also raises questions and concerns about the impact on competitiveness and whether we're not pushing out emissions in Europe only to see them come up again outside of the EU, a phenomenon called as leakage when production, investment, jobs, et cetera, um, get offshored. So that would be sort of, I think, a quick snapshot of this evolution of the EU. And of course, I look forward to discussing some of the specifics later. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Michael. I, I'll come back to you a little later uh, with, uh, to ask for your thoughts on uh, the issues facing us and, and the, uh, the design of phase four. But maybe I could turn to you, Anne, and I know that this is something that you've studied um, for, your, for your master's, but also from the standpoint of uh, promoting low carbon cements in the EU. So uh, from your perspective, what are the key issues facing the ETS in terms of its effectiveness? Glad to, to talk about this topic, which is really important for me, and I find it fascinating. In fact, 
the issues I saw somehow in the ETS is um, there are two issues and they are embedded in the formula where we calculate how much emission uh, they are free allocated to plants. The first issue is the reference period. There often in the EU ETS, the reference period was an average of a couple of years well before the current year. Um, many people discuss about uh, more going more on the um, output-based allocation, which is maybe one or two years before and not an average of maybe four, three or four years or five years before. So that was somehow even when we looked at the clinker production after the crisis, I have to remind that before the, uh, the 2008 crisis, the cons consumption of cement was at 270 million tons in EU. We are now around 160, so 100,000 ton less. So the reference period made it that provoked all the overallocation of the cement industry because the reference period was well before and was an average. Also, the reference period, um, they were supposed, in order to not to lose allocation, each plant had to produce at least at 50% of their capacities. With, in order not to lose their 100% free allowances. So what happened, and it was really uh, well documented in a lot of reports, is that a lot of cement plants were increasing their production until reaching this 50% level, even if the the plant didn't need to go that high. Everything was done in order to reach this 50%. And out of that, we arrived at an overproduction in Europe. And that's why we came up with the exports. The second issue in the formula is also the benchmark, which is what is the benchmark is a reference uh, of CO2 emitted by product or, or semi-finished product. The cement industry could have chosen between the clinker benchmark or the cement benchmark. There was a lot of discussion about that. And finally, after all, a lot of lobbying, they choose the clinker benchmark, which means that you receive a certain quantity of allowances according to the production of clinker. But that means also that if you produce clinker, you can, if you, your CO2 is on your clinker production, you cannot act in a clinker cement ratio because it's not considered in the formula. So if I could summarize that, and what, what you're saying is that the design of the system uh, meant that uh, the introduction of a, a low CO2 cement like LC3 was, was actually treated unfavorably. Totally unfavorably economically unfavorably because the industry would have loosened free allowances. Yes, and this was related to the fact that the design of free allowances was based on clinker production rather than cement production. Yeah. Yes. So, so th thank you for that. And um, maybe uh, Vincent, I can, uh, I can turn to you. And um, you uh, started a business, uh, cement business in, in Europe that was very much focused on trying to minimize the uh, carbon footprint of delivering cement to your customers. 
And uh, so you would, uh, you would hope that such a business would be uh, uh, favored by an emission trading scheme that had the objective of reducing uh, CO2 emissions. But that, that's not what you found. So perhaps you can explain uh, the difficulties that you've encountered uh, uh, with the ETS. Um, I, will, I will speak in, in general terms. We know that if there is free allowance, this impair innovation toward low carbon solutions. Uh, uh, and as by la uh, largely explains this and will not come back on that. Look, uh, we must look to another industry, which is the power industry, which has been from the very beginning obliged to purchase CO2 emission from the very first ton emitted. During the phase three of ETS, so the last 12 years, this industry has been able to lower their specific emission by 28%. Everybody knows that the power industry is a very heavy industry, very complicated to move, but uh, notwithstanding, they have been able to do it. In the meantime, the cement industry has done nothing. They have even increased their specific emission per ton of cement, uh, of cement produced. The only way to put the right legislative frame for heavy industry is to oblige all the players to purchase CO2 rights from the very first time. It's absolutely paramount that there is a scarcity of CO2 in the market and a stable frame in order to give a high price of CO2 and a relatively uh, a stable price, which is impossible with all the bias of free allocation. If we, uh, all the players are obliged to purchase from the first tone, they will innovate a lot and put into application that kind of new products like LC3 or others to be invented because they will have all the levers of gaining from lower CO2 emission, which is not the case because with free allocation, uh, we, uh, the, the producers, the polluters are only penalized on the fringe of it. Obviously, this has to be uh, uh, put in place in parallel with a carbon border adjustment mechanism in order not to uh, uh, delocalize uh, CO2 production. And uh, uh, we, we are very e um, at ease to defend this position because part of our supply chain is outside the European Union, but we is very uh, very CO2 efficient. If you put a, a carbon burner adjustment mechanism on uh, uh, based on real CO2 emissions at the, at the gates of the European Union, you put easily uh, on a, a fair base of competition all the players, all the players inside or outside the European Union. It will not be 
protectionist tool because we I really believe that giving free quota that are unnecessary and then that can be sold the day after this is a state subvention is a disgrace state subvention okay so Vincent, let me stop you there because we're going to look at the the future of the of the, uh, the future design of the scheme in just a second but, but maybe just to, to to sort of recap um uh the the key the key challenges facing the cement industry as we uh, look at our response to climate change it is not only do we have a situation where the cement industry is responsible for say seven percent of global co2 emissions we also have a situation where 90 percent of cement is produced in developing countries so if if we want a global solution and clearly you have to have a global solution for uh, for climate change then it's important that we find a, um, a way of doing this uh, that can become worldwide. And we have some, we have some technical levers, uh, technical levers that we've been pulling for many years in terms of fuel efficiency, uh, changing to lower carbon fuels, uh, including waste, uh, and then reducing the clinker factor in cement. And uh, we still have some way to go on, on, on all of these. There's some space to improve further with these traditional levers, but uh, we also need new and innovative solutions uh, to reduce the CO2, you know, not just by 30%, but ultimately to get down to zero net carbon. Uh, so uh, when, when we talk about uh, the role of ETS, it's, it's a very important example of how governments have tried to uh, create incentives uh, that uh, will encourage decarbonization. And as Vincent said, it's been quite successful in the power industry uh, in doing so. Um, in the cement industry, it hasn't been successful for the reasons that uh, uh, we've, we've all talked about. But I think going forward, we, we should uh, consider um, the ETS impact on the cement industry in Europe uh, and also the ETS impact on how uh, regulation might develop in the rest of the world. Uh, so maybe, um, Michael, I can uh, pass it back over to you uh, to talk about uh, uh, your views of, of the challenges uh, facing uh, the, the ETS and, and uh, how those key issues can be addressed. But perhaps you can also comment on the knock-on uh, impact that the ETS might have elsewhere. Well, those are great questions. Um, Anne and Vincent have already outlined and described some of the real challenges that the ETS has faced. And um, Vincent already mentioned one of the instruments that's being discussed to potentially help address some of these. So free allocation, as Anne mentioned, is, has been in a way very effective in achieving one of its objectives, and that is to ensure that there, the competitiveness impacts or the threat of competitiveness impacts is blunted as much as possible, but at a high price, namely muting the price signal in the EU ETS and creating to some extent also perverse incentives such as those that Anne mentioned. So there's been a mixed track record and certainly some degree of dissatisfaction, not only within you know, the decision-making community, but also the broader public um, and constituencies such as environmental groups, et cetera, exerting some pressure politically to revise and revisit the system. Uh, but also more importantly, looking forward, it's very clear that you know, free allocation cannot persist in perpetuity in a context in which we're seeing dramatically ramped up and accelerated ambition 
heading towards full decarbonization, including in the EU ETS, where we might see net zero emissions even before mid-century. Because free allocation, of course, by definition, depends on continued availability of allowances. Um, but as you get closer and closer to zero, that amount of allowances, the overall amount of allowances is rapidly decreasing. There's also an additional um, element in the design of the EU ETS. It's called the cross-sectoral correction factor, which ensures that you know, if free allocation exceeds a certain fixed percentage of the overall allowances, which would inevitably happen if we retain the current formula, because it is based on historical emissions of a period of a preceding period, um, there will be this, this correction factor applied across the board, rapidly reducing free allocation. So there's really no, let's say, pushback against the realization that this concept of free allocation may have been had its uses in the past at some point, but it, it is rapidly seeing sort of the end of its useful lifetime, if you like. And the alternative that has been proposed um, over the years, it's, it's come up time and again, but it never really has gained much traction until um, Ursula von der Leyen at the time still candidate in, in, as a candidate for the presidency of the European Commission, put it in her political guidelines last year in July. And since then, things have moved really fast. So this instrument, which is complex and is also not without a certain um, amount of political controversy, is now really being moved forward very rapidly within the European Commission. The Director General Taksud on taxes, customs, union, etc., is is charged with this file and elaborating a legislative proposal. And that's what they're working on right now. In fact, a consultation um, is still open on this proposal. And the expectation is that by some point mid next year, we would see such a carbon border adjustment mechanism being proposed as a legislative proposal for discussion in the council and the parliament and adoption soon after. It's been remarkable because it's a controversial policy option. At least it has been in the past with many of Europe's trade partners. They have at least in the past claimed that it is you know, disguised green protectionism. Um, so there's definitely some political risk associated with it. And it's complex to implement. There's many, many different options that the commission is testing and checking um, and that um, ultimately will require a decision. And of course, we outsiders, so to speak, we, we still don't know what, what will come out of this process and what will be proposed. But we can expect, I think, that this is being discussed and the cement sector certainly would be a very viable candidate for application of this. But it raises questions such as, if a CBAM, if a carbon border adjustment mechanism is introduced for the cement sector, you know, how will things be calculated, such as the emissions embedded in imported cement? Um, will policies credit, uh, imposed in the countries of origin be credited? And very importantly, of course, what happens with free allocation? Will it be completely phased out? Will there be a transition period? So there's many of these big and, and impactful questions being discussed right now. Okay, um, so Michael, before you move on to the uh, second part of the topic, I can see that Anne would like to add something there. What I think we have to point out is that before the 2008 crisis in Europe, Europe was a net importer of cement and clinker. We began to export a lot after the, uh, the, the crisis and even more when we received those allocations, when, when all the plant, cement plants had to reach this 50%. So in 
So any plant has to produce this 50% of the capacity. So there was too much cement and clinker in the market. And that was why cement uh, Europe was beginning to export. So somehow looking at the export capacity in cement of Europe is a bit utopia. It's like it was the, the influence of the EUTS that made Europe export. So now why it's becoming a topic in Europe should be self-sufficient somehow. I, I just want to add from the end point uh, to put into perspective that uh, exports of cement and clinker from Europe outside Europe Union is less than 3% of the total. So it's completely marginal. First point, it's only from very few countries. Most of it is from Greece, Spain, and Portugal. We were the most hit by the crisis and were the most incentivized to export at whatever price to reach the famous 50%. So it was, a, it was not, uh, I would say, um, an economic, a, a, a logical economic uh, position, but pure and opportunistic situation in order to reap the part of the famous windfall profit from, I would say, not not uh, uh, not used free. So, so you're saying that effectively these free allowances were subsidies to increase production in less efficient plants and to keep. Exactly, and to keep running completely inefficient plants. That was absolutely the effect. Regarding also the free allocation based on whatever system, system of grandfathering, it's the way of officializing market shares. If you give the rights of producing in the future exactly the what you have produced in the past, it means that the European Union is freezing market share and impelling newcomers to play their, uh, their uh, to play free competition into the market. It's completely inefficient because it's a protection of old inefficient plants, and the the Commission should foster fair competition in order fair competition and innovation. Okay. So, um, Michael, can I come back to you? Did you, did you uh, have anything else that you wanted to add to that? And then could you also um, uh, talk about how what happens in Europe can have an impact outside Europe? Sure. So let me maybe just really segue from what Vincent was just saying. He was describing a mechanism that is certainly, um, as I see it, being considered and discussed um, in Brussels, which um, relies on using some default values, such as a benchmark for simplicity, for administrative simplicity, imports are presumed to be, say, as efficient as the average European producer, but gives the importers, so the foreign producers in the, in the final um, um, result, the opportunity to prove with verified and, well, with independently third-party verified emission reports, um, the opportunity to prove that they are cleaner than this default. And that indeed would to me seem like a very logical, economically efficient and environmentally favorable solution. Um, now, I, I may have been the one before saying, you know, this is nonetheless 
not going to be easy. There, there are a number of difficult design choices to be made. I mentioned also that I think cement is a strong candidate for applying such a, or introducing or even piloting such a border carbon adjustment because cement is, despite being very energy intensive, it is not one of the most trade intensive goods. There is of course, cross-border trade. This is creating problems, but at least it is not, let's say, traded as intensely and around the world as steel. The value of the good cement is simply not in as favorable a relationship or proportion to the shipping costs. So you don't see that much um, global trade of cement. Um, so that makes it somewhat easier to try this concept, which is still a, a, a pioneering concept. Uh, border carbon adjustments have not been deployed at scale outside of the power sector, and that only in one context in California. So it's really a new instrument. And when I go back to where I said it's, it is somewhat controversial is, well, part of the idea and part of the rationale and narrative that the EU has already used in some of its statements and documents is that by doing this, you not only allow the EU to unilaterally raise its ambition without risking leakage and impacts on competitiveness, but you send a signal to other countries, to trade partners, telling them if you want to continue seeing the EU as one of your large export markets, then you will have to ensure that your production cleans up and that you countries implement comparable climate policies. Um, because if you do not do that, you will be affected by, you will be subject to this border carbon adjustment mechanism. There's a lot of devil in the details how exactly that will be implemented, but that is clearly part of sort of the environmental rationale. And as you can imagine, other countries such as India, China, the United States, indeed, Brazil, uh, they're already voicing um, concern about that. They feel like that's intruding sort of in their sovereign prerogative to decide what policies to implement. And it's unilaterally and extraterritorially sort of regulating what their companies, what their subjects um, are doing um, outside of the EU. So it will certainly, I think, come to, to some difficult diplomatic conversations in the medium term as this is being rolled out. But all in all, I've had many conversations with representatives, with decision makers in other countries. And what I feel has changed in the last few years is A, even developing countries are subject now to the Paris Agreement and to some obligation to, well, to commit to nationally determined um, climate mitigation reductions or climate mitigation pledges. Um, so this is no longer a completely binary situation where the EU is looking to reduce, other countries don't care. No, all countries now have this challenge to reduce emissions. And that has changed how they view issues such as leakage and competitiveness. So at the very least, there is understanding why the EU is doing that. And there's understanding why European industry is calling for this and why the EU has pressure to, to move forward with an instrument such as this carbon border adjustment. But there's still many uncertainties. So I'm, I think it's going to be exciting and interesting to see how this moves forward. Thank you very much. So perhaps we should uh, um, sum things up by trying to see what the, the takeaways are from this uh, discussion. Uh, so, so for me, one of the key takeaways as we think about the cement industry uh, around the world and uh, the future of decarbonization efforts is that the, the design of related regulations and legislation such as uh, emission trading scheme is, is very critical in creating the right incentives. Uh, because of the changes in economic circumstances that the EU faced after the financial crisis, uh, the ETS, which was designed to 
reduce CO2 emissions in the cement sector uh, probably had the opposite effect. Uh, and uh, I think that's a, a lesson for regulators uh, around the world or, or a caution for regulators around the world in designing um, uh, their own schemes, uh, either trading schemes or carbon taxes or other uh, climate-related uh, legislation, that it's quite difficult to get this right. And it's important to be able to change if the policy goals are not being met. I'd invite uh, uh, the other panelists uh, to uh, share what, uh, what they take away from this discussion. And maybe, uh, Anne, we can say ladies first and uh, start with you. Thank you. Um... I think it will be very tricky, especially with the border carbon adjustment. Uh, one issue that might arise, like Michael said, is that um, the, the countries bordering EU may be more efficient in terms of uh, efficiency of the kiln than the average European one. So let's take an example of uh, Turkey cement entering Europe with a certain benchmark. And I think that the benchmark is very easily, uh, easy to, to audit. It's cement is not rocket science. What happens if the cement of Turkey would be under the benchmark? We never looked at an example like that, for example. And it may happen because Turkey, Morocco, Tunisia has a high percentage of dry and very efficient kiln compared to Europe, where we still have around how many, we still have 15% of wet kiln in Europe. We don't have that anymore in other countries. And what we also have to see is what could happen in a full auctioning scenario. And I think EU has to look at that saying, okay, I did a calculation for myself saying, okay, if we have a CO2 of 30 euro per ton, for example, and I put a tax on CO2 on any ton of cement, I took an average price and I took as a reference a house, a simple house that was in Berlin, I think. Um, the house was um, 100 square meter, equivalent of 262,000 euro. The cement cost into the, in this house was only was 2% normally in a normal house. It raised from 2% to 2.78% for pure cement if we added tax, which means it will go from uh, 5,000 euro to 7,000 euro, 2,000 euro more if you have a very intensive cement. If you look, I, I want my house to build in green and, and choosing a low uh, CO2 cement, it would only raise of 1,200 euro for my whole house. So we have to look, it, it could work in cement. And I think a free allocation, uh, full auctioning with border carbon adjustment, I think we really need to make the whole case study and at European level in order to see that it can work. And then we can act through the whole value chain, through the ready mix, the architects, the building companies, and that might work. Okay, thank you, Anne. So, Vincent, would you like to add something? Um, thank you, Anne, because it could have been also my takeaway what we have said. Um, 
I, I will add on one, only one point. We know that CVM will be controversial. Uh, that will be, as uh, uh, Michael rightly pointed out, much more complicated with higher value products and more, uh, more uh, worldwide trade like, uh, like steel. But goddamn, let's be practical. Let's solve the simplest problem first, and then we will learn solving the simple problems like cement in order then to design some, 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 oh, some, something more sophisticated for more complex sectors. But if we want to have to be a universal solution, we will never start. And the point is starting right now. We know that we have lost 12 years with ETS-3. Are we ready to lose again 10 years with ETS-4? No. My kids will say, God damn, what have you, what have you done? You lose decades. And you knew you were losing decades. Just try, start right now and put this simple legislation for a simple sector like cement right now. Okay, thank you, uh, Vincent. So, Michael, can I give you the last word here? Well, I, I have to try my best to follow up on um, Vincent's impassioned appeal. I think, um, you know, I concur. Um, I think what we're seeing in Europe in particular, but also in other jurisdictions around the world is the game is changing on climate policy and we're really becoming aware how, how massive the transformation will be that is needed in the very short term and policies are moving in that direction. Political pressure, public support for, all of these things have changed dramatically in a very short time. And so the challenge that we face in the next years is really momentous and industry is one of the most challenging sectors and sectors such as cement, steel and others. There's a lot that has to happen. Innovation and coming up with um, the sort of low carbon and ultra low carbon substitutes or you know, alternative production methods, that is what we really need to be moving forward. And so I fully echo Vincent that sort of the, the easy, let's be very cautious, let's move slowly approach, the incremental approach of the last decade is not something that we have the luxury of retaining going forward. And I would, I would say, yes, we, we need to try everything, throw it against the wall and see what sticks. It'll be complicated. There will be some unexpected results. There might be some, some difficulties in implementing it, but we do need to move forward. That is something where there's no question. And I think this carbon border adjustment mechanism is probably one part of that discussion without question. Thank you. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, uh, Vincent. Thank you, Anne. So I hope that all of you listening have uh, enjoyed this podcast and a review of what's happening with the European ETS system and uh, how that might go forward in a way that could be quite positive for the cement industry's uh, uh, action with respect to climate change. Uh, so these podcasts uh, will be a regular feature and uh, we'll look at uh, different sustainability topics around the world. And in a couple of weeks time, uh, I shall be talking to Thomas Schultz, the CEO of FL Schmidt, about their mission zero and about how some of the new technologies are helping the cement industry uh, to reduce its carbon footprint. So I uh, hope that you will tune back in to listen then. Thank you all very much. Goodbye. <laughs>